Welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, a podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you this week from the observation deck above the Ward-Smith Experimental Cranberry Bog here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about a heartwarming example of what scientists call resurrection genomics, the genetic sequencing of date trees grown from 2,000-year-old seeds excavated at Masada and other ancient sites near the Dead Sea. Why are dates such useful, adaptable, and productive fruits anyway? What do the genetic codes of these ancient varieties brought back to life tell us about the spread of dates around the ancient Near East and North Africa? And if dates are so delicious, nutritious, and all-around great, how come the trees became the symbol and not the fruit? Okay, the lightning round. Most memorable date-related experience i'll i'll begin for the sake of uh for the sake of um getting things rolling i believe the year was 1986 or 87 and um somebody picked me up in tucson and we drove to indio california for the annual indio date festival um wherein because Indio is apparently the center of the California date industry. And there are all sorts of date related celebrations and products. And uh, I was really looking forward to trying a date shake. The problem was that we had misread the uh, calendar and we were a week late. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we continued to up to San Francisco. And then there's another story about um, dining out at 2 a.m. at a place called Raggedy Andy's, but I'll save that for another for another episode. So that's a so that's a date story that has sort of two axes. Yeah, it's both, a, date, both dates and wrong dates. Mm. It's true. Well, that's it's good. An, it's an unrequited date, <laughs> really, when you come down to it. But uh, that's all I got, really. You know terms of memory memories hmm. well um i have a memory of going to a desert city in western china called turfan that was known for its date and raisin varietals hmm. and uh it was a it was an extraordinary thing the market there had millions of kinds of raisins i don't know how many kinds of dates it had i don't remember the I don't remember if there was a huge diversity in all of the dates, but, but the raisins were, the number of varieties of raisins was crazy. Hmm. Putting the California raisins to shame. It did. It really did. 
Well, I've got nothing. I can't come up with this. <laughs> with the same no, dry, no dry dates uh, from your grandmother's uh, <clears throat> table? No, no dry dates. Lots of raisins and peanuts and things, but no dates. Um, yeah, I've really got nothing. I mean, you know, I can I can remember my the first time I went to the Middle East and, you know, getting off the plane and seeing all these palm trees for the first time ever. And, you know, for the sake of for the sake of this broadcast, I'm going to assume they're date palms. And, um, you know, it's very different than the northeastern United States where you have palm trees. I remember I had a turtle. <laughs> And in this, in the turtle's bowl, there was this little artificial date palm tree. Right. Wow. Interesting. Then the turtle would habitually escape and we'd find him um, or her in the middle of the shag carpet in the living room. <laughs> it's amazing that the turtle didn't get stepped on. Yeah. Well, so such were the days. So. <laughs> well, that's my well, turtle but, story. <laughs> we go from we go from um, fruit to fruit to turtles, but but what can we say about? Um, and I'll just use this word one, this phrase once: resurrection genomics. Well, well, I think that the term resurrection genomics is one of the one of the best things to come out of our our little deep dive into dates, um, <clears throat> because if ever a term lent itself to the study of the past in the Levant or West Asia, it's resurrection genomics in, in so many different ways, but. Uh, let's, let's hear some of the ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly in terms of the Abrahamic faiths, mm. resurrection genomics <laughs> looms large. Right, well, that's, but that's more of the, the question of the past isn't even past. The, the past isn't past, it isn't even past anymore. Who's, who said that? <laughs> it wasn't Steinbeck. Um, anyway, but the idea of bringing these things back to life, and maybe we should uh, clarify, finally, uh, <laughs> for, for our, our Belgian listener, um, that what we're really talking about here is to, <laughs> the process of taking old biological material, in this case, date seeds from excavations, excavations from long ago, but the seeds themselves are 2,000, 2,500 years old and cultivating them and then genetically sequencing them and, um, and reviving the species, which is, as we know um, from, from the movies, <laughs> typically leads to unforeseen circumstances, but- I um, <laughs> Hi, Jinx and Sue. <laughs> <laughs> it was their planet once, and it will be again. <laughs> but that's one of the great things about dates. Apparently, dates are like really, really old species. They're like tens, hundreds of millions of years old. Um, and, and, and yet we enjoy them still today. That's true. And the amazing thing is that unlike, I hope, resurrecting dinosaur genes, uh, these actually worked. These actually worked. And I think the first one to get, to, get uh, to, to germinate, nobody was expecting it to germinate. And boy, were they surprised. And then they decided to try more. I just looked at the pictures of, of, all, of these, all of these dates and they're, they're gorgeous. They're, they're a couple meters high and they're sitting there in their pots 
And, and who knew that the seeds were from Masada or, or from Qumran, that you could just plop one in, in a glass of water. And <laughs> in an old coffee can. <laughs> right. I think that's a little more complicated. I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, they use one of those high-tech coffee cans, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. They yeah. would measure the soil pH or, or whatever. But um, I, I like this idea of, of resurrection genomics, and especially since, since um, DNA kinds of analyses have become so, so popular with uh, or around the archaeological field over the last decade or, or two. And now we can tell, you know, that Neanderthals and, and Homo sapiens 35,000 years ago were cuddling up and creating <laughs> hybrids of of, of their own, but, but really, I don't like, you know, I, I've, I have, a, I have a big bone to pick with, with those kinds of studies because the, the chronologies are so, are so messed up and the conclusions are so, are so specific for, for such ancient kinds of things with small samples. But here, here we have actual revived individuals right. from long ago. And yep. it's, much one, more thing, one thing I like about this is that they, to, in, to make it easier to differentiate between the different samples that grew, they gave them names, right? So they gave them biblical names. And the first one that they germinated, they named Methuselah. Um, and uh, then they used other biblical names such as Adam and, and a bunch of other ones as well. So we can, we can talk about these trees that have germinated by name, which we'll do, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the fourth hour of our broadcast. <laughs> well, but we should clarify for our listener as well that uh, the, the whole point of this was to a see if it could be done, <laughs> and which is which typically gets those science boffins in trouble, at least on screen, but also to to understand um, you know, a particular kind of phenomenon, and that's the Judean date palm, which was a unique species or thought of as a unique species around the Roman era, renowned for its productivity. And, you know, much of the Southern Levant in the Dead Sea area was covered with, with zillions of these, of these trees producing delicious, delicious fruit, which then kind of disappeared over the, over the eons. And now, now we've, they've brought them they brought them back. But the interesting thing is that their ancestors all come from somewhere else. They come from the East, they come from the West, they even come from the island of Crete. And that's, that's sort of like the cautionary tale of all of this uh, genetic testing, that you, that you get genetically tested and then you find out that, mm. you know, no, you're not from, you know, County Cork in Ireland. <laughs> you're, you're, you're from, you know, you're from, uh, <clears throat> you're from Svalbard in Norway. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so that's a whole, you know, that's that, that's sort of like the, uh, you know, the turn in the movie, The Prestige, you know, you, you think one thing and you find out a whole different thing. But in this case, what we, what we learn is, is, as I understand it, is the following, is that uh, for a long time uh, in the fifth and fourth and third millennia BCE dates in the Levant, 
look, e uh, look east towards Mesopotamia and Arabia. And then with the construction of the Roman Empire and the conquest of, the, of Western Asia by the Romans, uh, local Judean farmers start hybridizing and playing around with uh, new species of dates that come in from the West. And so you sort of get this admixture. And yeah. so you sort of get a tie-in between sort of geopolitical events or geopolitical, uh, you know, uh, new orderings of the geopolitical world and and agriculture and food and things like that. And who knew you could get all this from a bunch of old seeds? So, and that and it lets us use a, another great word, um, heterozygosity. <laughs> Nice one. <laughs> which, uh, which, which we all are. We're very hetero, heterozygous. Yeah, good. <laughs> we come from here, we come from there. I was also fascinated by this, by, um, I looked up some of the, the statistics on dates and it's leading, leading me into a whole other direction here. Um, we know the date as a symbol. We know the date as this sweet, delicious, either gooey or hard fruit, but just the sheer numbers of, of dates are, uh, of, and date trees is first of all, astonishing. So in 1920, yes. in Iraq, they grew 48 million pounds of dates. What are they doing with all those dates in 1920 in Iraq? Well, they're eating a lot of them and they're exporting a lot of them. Um, Algeria in 1920, 440 million pounds of dates. Oh Remember that date syrup is really a, a kind of a sh sugar substitute. I and I think sugar was, you know, sugar is relatively recent. Sugar is relatively expensive and you had to create sugarcane plantations and all of that. And, and I think that, uh, that in the Middle East and, uh, and I think further east that, that dates were the sweetener. And so, you know, this date syrup kind of thing was, was a really important part of, uh, of the local agricultural and uh, uh, production and, and general, cuisine, general cuisine. That's a really good point. And I was also thinking about date wine, um, which I believe is based on a wine making book I once picked up. It's supposed to be an easy kind of wine to manufacture. Ah. So right, apparently the Algerian authorities tried to regulate the production of date wine <laughs> because people were getting a little too going a little bit too overboard with the date wine. <laughs> it's so easy, but you know, I I think it's I think there are a couple of points. One is that uh, once once you get a, and I looked this up also. Well, you're like in a real Poindexter mood today. You're just, <laughs> normally, I, even, well, I, thought, I thought the whole conceit of the show was we're not supposed to be you Googleizing everything. <laughs> but I have this book oh. called Date Palm. <laughs> which is I, bet it, I bet it's a first edition. It, it is. It's the only edition. And I got it years <laughs> and years ago and never looked at it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So All right. The opportunity. Very fair good. enough. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. So you you should have referred to that because here we were thinking that you were googling wildly, but in, in no, point no. of fact, this was a book that that you and I were probably vying over 
you know, <laughs> 30 years ago and, and hunting down on all the shelves of, of used booksellers in Chicago and in Philadelphia and in, in Jerusalem and even Tel Aviv. And you got it. And now you're finally using it. Finally. I, th I probably... Uh, yeah. I probably spent like four bucks on it even. Right. But, um, so it takes dates four to eight years to reach um, productive age. It take they, they have a. a but how is that? How old is that in in human years? It could, <laughs> it could be sixty years old. That's true. And then they and then they live for they produce for forty or fifty years. Oh wow! Each tree can produce something like hundred and fifty to three hundred pounds of fruit a year. My goodness. So, so it's like Genghis. It's like the Genghis Khan of of one, two, three ancestry, or whatever that's called. <laughs> right. But the 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 bottom line is that these are like little terraforming devices. Oh, oh. nice oh. golf clap for the use of terraforming. <laughs> Thank you. <That's, laughs> trying to take home the big word trophy for for. <laughs> but if if you go out to some oasis. And you, you know, and you send your camel to bed. <laughs> oh, I was going to start singing, but I thought better of it. <laughs> and you have a, you have a bunch of dates or seeds. You can drop them in, in the sandy soil, as long as the, the water level is like 20% or so and come back and boom, you've terraformed that oasis. Right. Um, you've, you've made it now a useful economic resource. That's um, interesting. The spice must flow. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, you know, I think it's one of these under under appreciated kinds of but pioneering it's, species. It's an that's an interesting point because actually that didn't happen. We have oases and we have lots of obviously there's lots of space in North Africa and the Near East, where that kind of terraforming might have, could have happened. And I think something in the back of my head says that there were these large day plantations in the Hellenistic and Roman period in Egypt and elsewhere, right. but it didn't lead to that sort of, that dune conclusion of turning the desert into a, into a giant prosperous <clears throat> day plantation, but rather it, it remained as it is. Uh, a desert with a few oases uh, and dates not being, um, you know, not terraforming the world. Right. Now that's a very good world. point also. I mean, I think it's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be able to grow dates, but you still need water to drink. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so you got some terraforming, <laughs> you got some terraforming going and you got still difficulties of living in the desert. I wonder if it's a thing like, you know, like all luxury products, especially agricultural products. And here I'm thinking of things like um, marijuana and coffee and things like that. If the money is in the logistics as opposed to in the growing. So that date growers didn't really make all that much money. Uh, it's the, it's the caravaneers and it's the logistical um, organization of the trade that makes all of the money, which would have kept the creation of big date plantations, et cetera, very small and low because there wasn't a lot of money at the bottom. All the money was in the, in, in the middle, in the logistics. And the guys doing the logistics, they don't care whether it's dates or whether it's you know any other lightweight 
agricultural product, you know, incense and um, all well, of those. I think, I think that's true in, in extreme environments or, or locations. Like, but, you know, the, the Siwa Oasis in Egypt apparently had in the late 19th or 20th century, 500,000 date palms. Right, and but that's because that, that was the only show in the Siwa Oasis. Yeah. Right, but in in um, in Mesopotamia, in southern Iraq, uh, there were millions, millions and millions of date palms. Now, obviously, if if you're some guy whose whose job it is to climb the the male tree, extract the pollen, and then climb all the female trees and and pollinate them, you're not making that much money. Right, but if you're a vast landowner, then I think you're, then it's a very profitable crop, and I think it's probably an under underappreciated staple crop, in certainly in the Middle East, and and all the other places that it's uh, that it's spread to. Well, it, underappreciated is this. So, so I was googling around economically under underappreciated. Um, okay, so so what what I found, or I'll pretend that I knew and only re yeah, rediscovered by googling around I've was what? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's where all the information comes from, right? So, um, in Roman period coinage in Judea, um, included an image of the date palm. So. Um, that and, and in fact, the modern shekel um, or half shekel, I don't know, uh, one of the modern coins in Israel, which imitates the ancient coins, includes the date palm. So um, I don't think it was really underappreciated if it was worthy of being put on coinage. But yet in the Iron Age, for instance, let's take the Iron Age too. We don't have historical or archaeological evidence of huge date plantations in in Judah. Forget Israel. Israel's too wet and watery and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it if it was for southern Mesopotamia, okay, it's a very, very specific environment and and they didn't have a lot, even though they had plenty of water from the river. Um, but in some place like Judah, if it was that valuable a crop, why wouldn't the Judeans in the 10th, the 9th, and 8th centuries? be, you know, mm. growing, you know, right, right. No, that's huge amounts of dates for right. that, for that big international date market. Right. Unless of course dates are being, are coming in, starting in, let's say the late ninth, eighth, seventh centuries from the Arabian Peninsula as part of the whole caravan trade, caravaneering trade. So maybe it's coming in, um, and, um, you know, maybe it's one of the underpinnings of the great Edomite state. <laughs> that could be. That As could opposed be. to metal, maybe also, you'd be thinking in terms of dates. But we don't get any <laughs> historical information as far as I know. Yeah, the, you know, land of milk and honey and dates show up in the, in the Hebrew Bible and all of that. But it's not right. a real, it's not a real focal point. I was about to say it's, they are in the Hebrew Bible because I looked this up too. So specifically in, in Second Samuel, you have references to date cakes, cakes made right. of Dates and and, right, and, and and some people think that the honey is actually it's, date. Right, is date. Is date but we know there. that's false because we know from Rehov that they have apiaries. Right. Well, they have all sorts of honey. Right. Well, <laughs> 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 I, 
and, and we invite our we invite our listener to tune in next time for a, a special um, honey related. <laughs> honey, I honey, I shrunk the date. So I'm just saying, I think that if dates were that um, important a crop and valuable a crop, that we would have more historical and archaeological information from the Iron Age too in the Southern Levant. But maybe that's, that. maybe in a sense, that's when it was getting going and it was an, a kind of elite um, concept or property. And that's why it shows up on all sorts of iconography beginning in the Iron Age, but it didn't become a big economic uh, factor until the Hellenistic Roman period when we have um, other literary sources saying, yeah, there are these enormous plantations in the Jordan Valley. And not to beat, uh, not to beat a dry date, but um, <laughs> again, when we enter the Hellenistic Roman period, especially the Roman period, um, and this is sort of discussed in all of these articles that uh, the, the, the influence that um, empire colonization has on agriculture and trade and exchange and all of that. But when we enter the Roman period, we have a world system. We have a world system that in the central part of the Mediterranean, they aren't producing that, much, that many dates. They want dates in the Eastern part of the Roman empire, they can't go fishing for anchovies and they want you know, anchovy sauce. So all of this stuff is moving around uh, in great quantities uh, for, you know, for the obvious reasons. It's an elite product, but it's also, it's also something that's available to the middle class. You have this huge burgeoning middle class. They all want products of the empire. It's a huge free trade zone. Everybody really loves free trade uh, because all the products circulate um, and it is part of a, I think you can make the argument that it's a legitimate world system. I was thinking a lot about world systems based on our last podcast and, you know, so I think sometimes we create world systems that probably didn't exist. It mm. just meant that stuff was being traded long distances and showed up everywhere, something like lapis, but yeah. that in the case of dates in the Roman Empire, that was a real product of a world system in which people wanted it across uh, the entire span of the Roman Empire. That's interesting. And that's also, so one of the things I read in one of the articles um, says that dates were grown straight through the 11th century, but by the 19th century, there were yes. no more dates being grown. And right. now that Alex gave those statistics about Iraqi dates and other dates in the 1920s. Um, many more statistics if you'd like. <laughs> Uh, may, maybe what we're seeing is is you know a gradual or maybe not so gradual changeover that that um, in the Middle Ages uh, the, the Southern Levant is just no longer the main producer where they had been a significant producer before, but the system changed to to other places by the 19th century. Right, and I think for me one of the most interesting things that obviously the articles we read were more interested were most were totally focused on the whole you know, genomic side of things. Right. But they do, they do make these historical connections and they do a really bad job of it. Yeah. It's really interesting how poor the kinds of historical inferences that they draw from their data are. Um, yeah. It's actually shockingly bad because they keep talking about an 11th century BCE Judean polity. And I have no idea what they're talking about. 
Um, and I, I know that they don't know what they're talking about and I don't know who they're talking to, but that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing is why do dates start declining in the 11th century? What happens? And I think sugar becomes a big crop and you get sugar, sugar plantations and sugar mills beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries. Right. Right. So, so that it would make sense if they, if they're rapid, if they had a rapid decline in the 16th century, that would make perfect sense. But what's happening in the 11th century that leads to their decline. So in the, you know, we have Pliny and Josephus and Herodotus going on and on and on about these Judean dates. And, and that really sort of, you know, brands the Judean date, fine. And they thrive in the, in the, you know, in the Roman Byzantine period, let's say. But what happens in the 11th century to lead to such a deterioration of the market for dates? Well, we've got a political mess in the Middle East in the 11th century. We've got, but, we've got Fatimids and we've got Seljuks and everybody's fighting over the Holy Land and, you know, but all that fighting started earlier than the 11th century. That that fighting it already kept steam as as you head towards the Crusades, as you head but, towards everything boiling over. But doesn't um, but don't elite don't prestige items, especially prestige food items, don't they always remain stable and in vogue even in times of political and but economic by that time it wasn't a it wasn't a, a prestige item anymore it was a bulk commodity which could be sourced from other other places like uh, like north africa or from mesopotamia within these other these newly configured um islamic empires it wasn't like the roman empire where you had uh, you know special you had commodities going every which every which way and if a, if a region drops out because it's in conflict or because there's some kind of climatic crisis or because the local managers uh, somehow are, you know, screwing up, uh, screwing up production, then, you know, other regions, other regions pick up the slack. But what, what's interesting to me, just to go back to the beginning of the, of this cycle of elite kind of interest in this plant or in plants generally. So I think that there's a, there's a parallel with um, citrus. So citrus is not native to the Middle East. It comes from South, South Asia, Southeast Asia. But it reaches, it starts moving West and it reaches um, the Levant, especially the Southern Levant by the Persian and Hellenistic periods. So here I point to the excavations at Ramat Rachel, where fossilized citron pollen is found in the plaster of a royal garden. And as we know, the citron, um, the etrog, becomes a very important um, Jewish symbol. And even though it's not a terribly important economic crop, it's not a very tasty or useful crop, but it's an important symbol first. And then it goes on to whatever wider acclaim it then achieves. And I think it's, it might be the same thing with this, uh, this whole symbolic. This whole, dates. Yeah, dates are dates are symbolic. Well, I mean, the Egyptians are using dates much, much earlier, but maybe I don't but know I, that we have a lot of evidence for, for Levantines 
using them, but Levantine elites saying this, the, the date palm, it's so, it's so curvy. It's so, it's so indicative of our, you know, um, something. Okay. Economically important. Let me push back on this a little bit. I think that's a very good and interesting observation. And I think that speaks Persian period, <clears throat> subsequent empi empires speaks again to this, you know, what empires um, allow and, and the free trade in empires. But I also, also think it speaks to something else on the iconographic level, which I, I've been thinking a lot about because yes, the palm tree is an important piece of iconography, right. but the date isn't because the date yeah. <laughs> looks like a little baby Ruth, doll, uh, baby Ruth uh, bar. And as we all know from the, from the movie Caddyshack, we, we know what that looks like. So it's not the date that is an important um, you know, uh, iconographic motif. It's right. the date palm. Right. And the inverse of that is the pomegranate. The pomegranate, which is much more you know, beautiful and felicitous than the lonely, wrinkled, gnarled, lumpy, brownish date um, is represented iconographically. It's right. a very important uh, piece of iconography throughout the Near East, both ancient and modern, as opposed to the pomegranate tree, which just looks, which is not statuesque in any way, which is a short kind of, you know, scrubby looking tree with, that has no real innate beauty, unlike the stately palm tree. So I think that they pick and choose as to you know, what's of value and importance to, to them on these aesthetic qualities as opposed to any political or economic. Because after all, all fruits represent fecundity, right? I mean, you know, why? Yeah. Because we water them and they give us lots of stuff. It's, you know, <laughs> it's not a big complicated thing. Right. But, um, but, while, but while the pomegranate is very beautiful, the date is not. And while the palm tree is very stately and beautiful, the pomegranate tree is not. So I think that they're really picking things that like some are... kind of parable, <laughs> the parable of the of the pomegranate and the date, the ancient text, the conversation between the palm tree and the pomegranate. <laughs> oh, stubby little tree, you produce, you produce voluminous amounts of seeds. You know, oh stately, <laughs> oh stately palm tree, you produce stubby little. <laughs> I like that. I can add. Iconographic analysis a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to just want to throw in. I need to get this in here somewhere. Um, what is the very best date one can buy in the supermarket in the U.S. today? Well, that is a great question because we are back to monoculture. We only have two choices in the supermarket: the famed Mejul date, exactly, and then the, the lumpen date of of you know of the of the of the you know lower class, whatever it is, right? I don't know so, what the lumpen date is, but all I know is that the measurable dates are fantastic. Exactly, and everyone gets the measurable date. So, and when we should point out from, they come from Jordan mainly. So, well, I think they come from all. I think they come from all over. Do they? I think so. Well, I, have, I have statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> we knew we could count on you. Go from forty to one. Alex. Say again? When did we go from 40 varieties of uh, date to one? one. Well, I think um, that we, we actually are seeing many more varieties um, 
in the in the U.S. In, well, in the global market, there are right, like not in the U.S. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of varieties. Right. And but in the U.S. market, yeah, the U.S. market is mostly like Rachel said, um, supplied by Israel and Jordan, but also by California. And there are apparently over ten thousand acres of uh, dates planted in California. That's not in that book. No, no. no. <laughs> now you're now you're now you're you googleizing. <laughs> but um, the guy who the guy who wrote the and this is it's an interesting point. Like <laughs> all of these points, the guy who wrote the book, the the very uh, amusingly named Paul Popenel, was. <laughs> was a date, um, he was a California date grower. And before World War I, he took this year long trip through the Middle East and Asia, collecting date varieties, which he sent back to his farm, like thousands of different plants, hundreds of varieties that he sent back to California and Arizona. And the ones that the market responded to are the big, glossy, juicy, smushy ones. The, the medjools, and that's that's kind of what's what's taken over. How do you guys feel about fresh dates as opposed to dried dates? Oh, fresh dates are much better. No? Chewy. Yeah. <laughs> Chewy. Very, I find them very fibrous and not so sweet. Yeah. I think mm. you know, it, the drying really accentuates the, the sweetness of the date. That's fair, that's fair, but... Uh... There's something very special about a fresh date because you don't get them around here. So um. <laughs> you're not well, climbing. Your, you're yeah. not climbing your date tree and <laughs> and making it rain. I'm not. <laughs> if I had made it to the to the the date festival in India, I could I could comment more cogently. Well, that's an interesting thing because in certainly in in Southeast Asia and South Asia, the mango is is one of the you know one of the fruit royalty and there are many, many, many <clears throat> species of mango and they all have different seasons and they all are used for slightly different things in cooking and in consuming and everyone looks forward to this type of mango and that type of mango. And, and that's slowly being reflected in the American market, right? We used to only have one mango and now you can get, in most supermarkets throughout America, you can get three or four or at least two or three. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that'll happen with dates too, as we refine our palates and we become more appreciative of the nuance between different kinds of dates. Hmm. Well, I, I, I want to go back to, to something you said about the symbolism, because I, th I, think, I think you might be onto something. That <laughs> certainly, certainly Judaism and Christianity are very date conscious symbolically but it's all about the fronds and it's all about the tree so you use it in your lulav you use it on palm sunday um it's a symbol of uh, resurrection and all this kind of stuff but it's not terribly delicious um and it's all about it's all about this kind of green <laughs> green inedible woody stuff that grows very quickly but it's not not good to eat as opposed as you say to the to the pomegranate and um as a, i'm sure we could find other kinds of fruit symbols in other cultures that uh, that we're not thinking of 
Um, if we look at Near Eastern iconography, which I'm doing right now, um, <laughs> the, um, the so, image so, of- So much for the general conceit of, the, of this project <laughs> in which we're just supposed to riff off the top of our heads and now we've, we've fallen prey well, to, the, to, the, to the millennial impulse of-, of, of <laughs> At we're not doing it on our phones. Well, well that's too hard for us. <laughs> um, in any case, the image of the tree of life in Mesopotamian iconography is not necessarily a palm tree. It, I mean, I can't really recognize what a lot of these these are. I mean, they, some of them could be palm trees, but... Um, but it's not a pomegranate tree. It's not a pomegranate tree, no. Oh, and, and how about, oh, I just thought of one other thing, and then you can get back. That's a good observation, but before I just forget, and where does the fig factor in? Because the fig is the sweetest and most delicious and most fragile. And yet the fig tree is not a very beautiful tree. And uh, though the fig itself, a fresh fig, you know. Yeah, that's a good kind point. Of, kind of voluptuous in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> For, first use of the word voluptuous in these broadcasts. Well, you, you again raise the bar with a word that I can't even remember, let alone pronounce. <laughs> It'd be heterozygosity. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I, I know that fig trees grow really easily. Like they'll, you know, any, yeah. any, any hole in the ground, they often grow in, well, something I know about Middle Bronze Age tombs. They will simply take root right. in, in exactly. spaces like that. Um, right. And fig trees are found in the Mediterranean environment, which we all know a great part of the Southern Levant is a Mediterranean as opposed to a desert environment. Right. Um, and yet the fig tree doesn't show up anywhere iconographically, um, though the fig itself does. The fig uh, itself, I guess, mosaics and things depict figs. Do they? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how some how some trees get get the PR and some. <laughs> <laughs> big, big fig, <laughs> big, big fig got their product on on mosaic floors. Right, the, the Mediterranean Fig Council just paid this much. Yeah. <laughs> got it you know, literally at the ground floor, but not. <laughs> you know, at there's a great um, image on the synagogue floor at Hukuk of uh, harvesting date uh, harvesting um, date trees. Yeah, huh. harvesting palm trees. Oh, well, that's a good example of iconography. That's that's great. Yeah, and that's of course also the site itself is located in the Mediterranean <clears throat> environment, and um, so yeah, that was obviously some kind of um, classic, you know, depiction. Right. That's yeah, and more more proof that by the Roman period in general. Byzantine. What? Or Byzantine? Or Byzantine? Uh, you have you have an element of concentration on dates. Right. Yeah. So I'm sorry, Rachel, but before you were talking about... Um, oh, I didn't have anything good to say, but I was pointing out that the Tree of Life motif oh, is, yeah, is not necessarily, it's, it's, it seems to vary in various things I'm Googling right now, um, but, um, but it's, not, it's, not, it's never obviously a date palm. Um, I, I, I suggest you all Google it as well and tell me what images <laughs> you're coming up with. Um, I, I remain wedded to our, our, <laughs> our, our right. I'm just riffing off whatever comes into my little brain. <laughs> but it's, on the no one it. has ever suggested that the tree of life is, a, is an olive tree or that it's a, 
you know, the, the pomegranate or an apple tree or right. uh, the apple tree, uh, the apples were not so common just yet, but they were getting, getting common coming down from Central Asia around in these in these times a little later yeah mm -hmm. um plums <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, now, now we're just naming fruits <laughs> I'm just, I'm, you know naming fruits off the top of my head for, for iconographic purposes yeah who's in and who's out i'm sorry who's who's in and who's out i guess the the palm tree just you know it's fast growing it's tall it's stately right and it produces good fruit right yeah yeah um i would be remiss if i didn't mention the most important archaeological reference to dates which comes from the first indiana jones movie oh you yeah. remember that where no. the where the monkey drops down dead after having eaten some dates, which Harrison Ford proclaims Spoilers. are bad dates. They were poisoned. They were poisoned. They were they were, they were poisoned by the by the Nazis. That always <laughs> comes to mind immediately when I think of dates in archaeology. Apparently, not for other people. Mm. Oh well. Well, it's <laughs> dates, and, dates and monkeys. So, do we have but, other things to say about dates? I think that uh, uh, we've explored this. We have not really that, uh, that these uh, articles uh, sort of go beyond what these articles uh, lead us to. Yeah, um, right. I, I feel like we haven't made enough puns about dates. I think maybe we made one pun about dates, um, archaeological date, dating, and dates. And yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's interesting how you know. You get sometimes you really do get to resurrect your 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 archaeological subject, but also I just how big the divide as as was mentioned earlier the the divide is between the genetic the geneticists who are looking at these things and trying to fit in the history and the archaeological perspective about what's really happening on the ground, and uh, it's and it's just like saying well I'm. I've discovered that I'm 53% Estonian and <laughs> and 9% Olmec, and <laughs> which really says absolutely nothing unless you have some kind of real in-depth historical archaeological framework to work with. Very, very true. Well, okay. all this has made me want to have a couple of dates as part of my lunch. I have a bowl of dates on my counter. I'll be having some, I believe. I'll be very um, careful about uh, biting that pit. <laughs> avoiding, avoiding that pitfall. <laughs> I think that's probably a good place to stop right there. Okay. Well, okay. That was sweet. As always, we thank Erez Dessel and his British Light Music Orchestra for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Great Lakes Paperclip Company of Napoleon, Ohio. If you're looking for artisanal, handmade paperclips at an affordable price, why not try Great Lakes Paperclips? They're still only 10 cents a box. To get in touch, leave us a comment, or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, 
all one word, at gmail.com, or just send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.